A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, actually, I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome to In the House and In the Senate. I'm Alicia Aiken-Radburn and we're talking to women in Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. Senator Holly Hughes was elected as a senator for New South Wales at the 2019 federal election. She's a member of the Liberal Party and first joined the party back in 2002. She has three awesome kids, Millie, Fred and Rupert, and much of their family life has been spent living in Moree in regional New South Wales, giving Holly an intimate understanding of the issues facing people living in rural areas. Holly's son, Fred, has autism, and being the super mum that she is, Holly founded the Country Autism Network and continues to advocate hard for people with a disability in Parliament. Holly is compassionate, fun, and a force to be reckoned with. I am so excited to be talking to her today. Thank you for joining me, Holly. Thanks, Alicia. It's lovely to see you. It's been a while between cocktails. It has been. In fact, I think last time I saw you, we ran the city to surf together. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you see, I so was, that more was thinking... a little bit more of a healthy outing for us. I'm pretty sure there was some wines at the end. <laughs> well deserved. Well deserved. So you've been in Pali just today. I didn't include this in my notes, but I just want to get a sense of what your day was like today. Well, today was actually a pretty light day, which is nice. Sort of finishing it with you is a lovely bookend. Um, but I've been away just so much over the last, I don't know, five, six weeks. So I spent the morning literally catching up with paperwork. My EA is very relieved. I've now gone through about 150 invitations for her and said what I'll do and what I won't do, what I can do, what I can't do, um, and, uh, and signed a whole lot of correspondence and did all of that sort of you know, the quite administrative stuff this morning. Uh, and then I've had, uh, I don't know, it was, it was three or four hours on a hearing uh, this afternoon with regards to Centrelink compliance. So that was in Canberra, but I'm actually back in Sydney for the day. So uh, in this wonderful new age, you know, I managed to do that on teleconference. Wow. So what does a week look like in the life of a senator? Look, it can look like anything, and and I guess that's why this job is so amazing because every week is different, every day can be different, uh, but 
you know, when we're obviously when we're in Parliament, there's a structure to what it looks like, and that's where we've been a lot for the past month and a half. Uh, but when it's not Parliament sitting, I have particular areas in New South Wales that I look after, as well as some policy areas. So I try and get up and meet with businesses and people in those regions. So at the moment, I've been spending quite a bit of time on the far north coast, as well as through the Hunter region. So we're based in Sydney now, not in Moree. So that actually makes it a little bit easier to do my job, but uh, spend quite a bit of time either on a plane or in a car traveling to those places. Plus with uh, a little bit of normality starting to return in the post-COVID world, uh, a lot of our hearings and inquiries are back on. Uh, so I chaired the Autism Inquiry, Senate Select Committee into Autism, and we really found last year that it just wasn't effective to do them over Zoom. Like you just couldn't get, uh, it wasn't fair to the people that were coming to give us evidence. What is the reason for that? Is it because it's quite an emotional area? Yeah. or Yeah. Yeah. And I think because a lot of the time you are dealing with people that, that does have a bit of emotion behind it, but also people that have been in a, in a policy sphere around it, particularly advocate sphere, uh, some of them have been doing an amazing job and some of them not such a great job. I haven't even gotten to like the start of my questions because I want to just take it back to basics on this. What is an inquiry? Like, what are you aiming to do? Let's take autism. Like you talk about yeah. talking to advocates and not being able to answer the tough questions on Zoom. But I also know that when when we're conducting inquiries, we're also talking to people who, you know, uh, have children or people in their lives if, uh, who live with autism. So Ooh. what's that balance? You're both sort of interrogating organisations and... Yeah, so and we're talking to autistic adults as well. Um, so that's actually giving us another perspective uh, on this conversation because, you know, in the past, uh, autistic adults haven't had a particularly significant voice. There seems to be some misconception that autism somehow disappears post-childhood, which it certainly doesn't. But the, the aim of the autism inquiry is very broad, but I guess fundamentally what we're trying to do is put together a national autism strategy. Um, it's one of those things you've got 30% of NDIS participants have autism and we don't and have never had a national autism strategy. And so we want to have a look at everything from right back at the beginning with early diagnosis and how we can work with the states and, and develop some processes that work around getting diagnoses as early as possible because we do already know something. So we already know, you know, good quality intensive early intervention will we'll, produce incredible outcomes for these kids but we want to get to them as early as possible so obviously that diagnosis part's important we want to have a look at the early intervention space because like in so many areas unfortunately we've got some charlatans operating with snake oil kind of cures which are ridiculous so we, we're sort of looking at how we can uh, sort of get those out of the conversation and really focus on best practice strategies and then we look at all the transitions. So we're looking at all the transitions in life, whether it's into school, into high school, into employment, into independent living or, or supported living. But there's also things that are part of life like puberty that are particularly challenging for people with autism. And in the past, they haven't been dealt with particularly well. So having a look at how we can better encapsulate all of that together so people with autism and their families are able to, to live their best lives. 
I just think that is so awesome. And really, that's like the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, because I think that so much of the media that we're consuming around women in politics is, frankly, Holly, pretty awful at the moment. And I just know, like, you don't you don't read about it in the paper, you don't see it on 7.30, but I know that there are people out there like yourself who every day, your day-to-day is working working on, like, our next autism strategy. That's amazing. That's going to change people's lives. And there's lots of people working on lots of projects that don't get much media attention, that don't get the focus. And, you know, my autism committee but also the Joint Standing Committee around the NDIS, Um, they're very collegiate, they're very bipartisan, and people don't see that. And I don't think there's many clicks in the media for reporting how well people are working together. And so I think it would be really important, you know, for the people that are watching you, listening to you, to understand that, yes, there's lots of adversarial parts to it, but there's also lots of very constructive work always being done to benefit all Australians and quite often in a very bipartisan way. Uh, so it's not it's not as awful as everyone would have you believe <laughs> every second of every day. And, you know, yeah. I was on an inquiry today, you know, Senator O'Neill and I have very different viewpoints and there were some, you know, slightly heated moments there. But some of the stuff I pulled her up on was procedural. It's politics. She's going to try and push her political messaging Um, But, you know, I have a chat with Deb where we're walking out of the Senate. So, you know, it's not quite as nasty as I think. I mean, it can be awful, but it's not always that bad. Yeah. Now, taking you back to before you found yourself sitting with Deb O'Neill in a Senate (laughs) inquiry, what initially got you involved in politics? Because I'm, you know, it... I like to hear this positivity that it's not as awful as it seems. What drew you to the Liberal Party? So for me, I've always sort of had this interest in politics when I was, I guess, I don't know, 12, 13. Um, I sort of went on a path through journalism, you know, turned up at Channel 7 doing work experience when I was 14 and kind of never left um, over in Perth. And then before I headed to Sydney and continued over there, And I guess, you know, one of the things I was looking at, politics was always, I think, an end goal for me um, and looked at sort of different opportunities and how that might uh, eventuate. I didn't come from a political family, so it wasn't uh, like there was conversations around the dinner party that involved engagement in political parties or, uh, you know, my family weren't one of those ones that went and handed out on election day or, you know, that that wasn't how or the situation that I grew up in. Uh, But I was always interested in politics and it became clear to me, I guess, when I was at uni, so back in the early 90s, uh, that um, if you wanted to get things done, if you wanted to make a change, politics was where it happened. That's where the conversation, that's where the decisions were being made. I still didn't get involved for another few years, so I was 27 when I joined the party. Um, Liberal Party for me was an obvious choice, um, philosophically, I've always been about personal effort and reward. Um, I'm very much a believer in equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Uh, so the Liberal Party was always as the party of the rights of individual, the party that, that I was drawn to. Uh, so it, it just sort of fell into place, one of those, which I'm sure lots of people go through. I was 27. I had started a new job, really wasn't that into it. 
had spent a bit of time uh, over in the US where I'd got to spend some time with uh, some senior politicians and political figures over there and just came back and thought to myself, you know what, this is what I want to do. I'm 27, now's the time to do it. So I did. What happened next? So you're 27, you join the Liberal Party. Now, because I just recently listened to your maiden speech, Scott Morrison brought you into head office in yeah. 2000 for the 2003 state election and then the 2004 federal. Yeah. What was what was that like? So w- when you were first coming like it's it's a different story for me to hear someone joining. I'm very much used to the young labor join young labor young libs join at uni. They do the door knocking, they do the volunteering mm. in the EO and then they get an EO job and they go forth in that direction. Mm. What what we, what was it like at twenty seven? Were you just did you just say, "Hey, I really want to be involved in this"? Did you rock up to your local branch meeting? I did, I did worse than that. Um, <laughs> no, so I joined the party. Um, took me three goes. You know, love to know that all party political processes just work so efficiently. Oh my gosh, you, you were rejected. Well, wasn't rejected. Just my form <laughs> went nowhere. Oh, okay. So, we know what that means in the New South Wales. Maybe I was rejected and no one told me. I don't know. Um, but it just went in and sort of disappeared. Yeah. Uh, and then so I finally sort of joined. I was still working in this job and uh, I got an invitation to a new members night to be held at Macquarie Street. And I wasn't going to go. And then I thought, oh, God, no, this is what you signed up to do. So I turned up at the new members night. I met this woman, Rhonda Vanzella, who was the female vice president at the time and got chatting to her and she sort of said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I don't think I'm going to stay in the job that I'm in. Um, I've got a little bit of flexibility at the moment. And, you know, remembering I was the generation out of the recession we need to have when there was no jobs. And lots of people my age will tell you we all went and worked for free in different areas just to get our foot in the door. And so I said to Rhonda, look, I'd like to really get more involved. I don't know how I'd do that, uh, but I've got a bit of flexibility. I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to have some time. I think this is what I want to do. What was the job that you were leaving? Uh, So I was actually working for a consulting firm who did uh, IT consulting and then they also did some search, executive search functions around them. So So you're at Macquarie Street, you're having a chat and you're going to leave your job. What was next? So Rhonda Rhonda says to me, okay, there's a pre-selection tomorrow night. I'll let you know how it goes and I'm going to be basically running that campaign so you can come and work on it with me. So I did and we uh, was down in the Georges River area of Sydney and uh, went down there, worked on the campaign. Uh, The Labor Party were uh, winning that campaign quite decisively. And it was Scott that said to Rhonda, because she was obviously on the state executive with him, hey, that girl you've got, you know, the new one, I think she's wasted down there. I want to bring her into CHQ. So Scott brought me into that first CHQ and I worked with him. And so that was obviously the relationship developed from there. And uh, when it came to 2004, uh, I was one of, and there was only four of us brought in to be part of the key tactics group in New South Wales. So I got to work on that federal campaign. Incredible. I want to talk about you actually getting elected. Mm -hmm. Um, In your maiden speech, you describe your ascent to parliament in the words of Paul McCartney, a long and winding road. And you, over the years, I think it started back in 2010, 
you had various places on the Senate ticket. Talk me through this. Some were winnable, some were not winnable. Yeah, so it was really, indeed yeah, a long I and winding road. Prior to 2016, it was really um, flagging an interest as opposed yes. to uh, an ambition for a spot. So, what do you think of that? About like, what do you think of the like the practical? Like, is that a good way for young women to sort of show that they are enthusiastic and keen, and it's actually something that where they want to end up? I think it is one of the things that I do see women perhaps make a mistake here. Um, look, I've seen some men do it, but I've certainly seen a lot more women do it. And it's what we sort of colloquially refer to as seat shopping, but they get a bit excited with pre-selections and decide to stand in all sort of different forums, you know, whether it's upper house, lower house, state, federal, different areas. And I don't think that scattergun approach is the most effective way. Um, I certainly made my intention to stand for the Senate very clear very early on, um, even going back to when I, I had two stints as a staffer, both with senators, um, and, I mean, I finished staffing in 2005, so I haven't been a staffer for a very, very long time, just before someone accuses me of having no other life experience. But You should give, I, stop giving away all these dates as well. <laughs> Trust me, once you've got a Wikipedia page, there's absolutely no hiding. It's all done, right? There's just no hiding it. Just own it, you know. Yeah, I agree. Just go, women over 40 are awesome because we actually don't care anymore about a lot of stuff. So it's good. There's yeah. upsides. Take me um, to the double dissolution stuff. So for people yeah. who aren't aware, you were pre-selected first on the Senate ticket. What year would that have been? It would have been. So, I th- look, I can't remember the dates, whether it was the end of 2015 or beginning of 2016, but there was certainly for the 2016 election, I had been pre-selected for a normal election ticket to be number one on the ticket. And which, that's as, huge, right? Which, like, well, as you know, that's to a, a guaranteed entry into the Senate. Same. And uh, and in fact, I'd beaten the sitting senator for that number one spot. She was going to be in the number two spot. Um, so, you know, that was where we were at. And then uh, we found ourselves in a situation where uh, a whole well, there was a situation, and, it, and most people don't understand this, there was a situation in Victoria, uh, not to Victoria, Tasmania, where Richard Colbeck, who was the only minister from Tasmania, was put in an unwinnable position on their Senate ticket in Tasmania. So I was a member of federal executive at the time. Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister. And Malcolm came to a federal executive me- uh, meeting and basically said to all the states he wanted to ensure that all ministers were in the winnable spots on the ticket. So I'm sitting there going, So we ended up in a situation where we were both negotiating with the Nats as well as in negotiation. So it was there were two factors here. One, whether it was the Liberal Party or the National Party that was going to take number six on the Senate ticket. So, you know, we lost that argument because the Liberal Party um, had number six on the ticket. And so then it became a matter of whether it was me or the other senator who had then been elevated to the ministry would take number four or number six. So, you know, long story short, I think ultimately I took one for the team um, yes. because there was getting quite a bit of heated media coverage around it uh, and accepted the number six spot. 
Now, in any normal uh, cycle, the Liberal Party has generally for the past 34 years got three senators in each cycle, which means we normally have six senators from New South Wales. With the double dissolution, because only half the quotas were required, we saw a lot of minor parties come in. So the Liberal Party only got five out of the, you know, five spots rather than the normal six that we would hold in New South Wales. So I wasn't elected. Had you emotionally prepared for that? Like, were you of the mindset, like, to just step through it? You're on the federal executive, so you're very enmeshed in the party. You're very respected. I'm a vice president of New South Wales. I was chairing a federal committee on on federal executives. So, yeah, you could say that. So you're like, I'm going to take one for the team. I'm going to go number six. Were you in the mindset that now that you're in this sort of precarious position for a double dissolution situation, mm. had you already prepared yourself, look, 90%, this is probably not going to happen for me? Yeah, I think I had. I think um, emotionally, mentally, I'd certainly put that work in. That that was where my head was at. Um, quite What was quite funny after the election I got a phone call from a recruiter about a job that I'd applied for and I sort of said, look, really sorry, I actually don't remember what job it is that you're talking about because I'd kind of been going, well, I was, you know, moving back, like wanting obviously through the Senate to go back to full-time work, having been at home for a little while, um, as you mentioned, Fred's autism, we'd been running a very intensive ABA program for him, so and I had run that because my husband's business took my, you know, he, at the time it took his, he took him away a lot. So, you know, we, I had prepared for that, but I was also not planning to go back to being wife on the farm. Yes. And, you know, I was sort of like, you know, I'm done now. I need to go back to work. So properly. this call comes. So, you know, for a, for a position and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, the phone call itself was hilarious because the company that I ended up going, it was a recruiting firm, going to have a, a job interview with, um, the job had been put on hold. Um, but they said, actually, you're quite fabulous. Why don't you come and work for us? So I ended up going to work for Salt and Shake for the uh, bulk of the period right. before I went okay. back into the Senate. But, yeah, I, I got say. the job because I went in for another interview and they're like, we love you. Why don't you just come and work for us? I have to say, when you were just talking about the recruiting phone call, I thought you were talking about the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Which no, no, no. So that came, that came later. Um, so so you're, we miss out at number six. We miss out in the double dissolution election. And then what happens? Well, so I went back to work. You know, I just yep. got on with the show. Like, this is politics. You know, yes. this is... I think you need to understand that about politics. You don't always win and it's not always fair, but that's politics, you know, and quite frankly, that's life. So you just have to get on with the show. So I ended up getting off this job in Sydney. Um, So I did a little bit of a commute and uh, worked from home and did all of those sorts of things. And that was when I uh, was offered a position at the tribunal and at the AAT. And I was actually offered a full-time position, but I opted to take it part-time because I was still working with Salt and Shane and the flexibility with their hours and the projects that I was working on, I was really enjoying. And I thought, well, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into with the AAT. So I thought, well, I'll take a part-time appointment. So I did that for a very short period of time uh, because it was during, I think I was only there about four or five months because that was when the Section 44 
uh, stuff started happening. Fiona Nash had to step out of the Senate, which meant there was a vacancy. So For the I layman was... out there, Section 44 was all that citizenship stuff that was happening, like yeah. Barnaby Joyce and all of that jazz. Yeah. So Fiona the whole, Nash. The whole lot. Oh, my God, what a messy time. Yeah, so... Um, Fiona Nash, yes, she what gets moved on because she was. I think she had British citizenship. I can't can't remember, but she definitely had a second citizenship. So she gets out. It was hilarious. My husband was ex husband was actually driving out. It was a a, a former uh, therapist that had lived with us. We had living therapists to the airport, Uh, and in Moree, I can tell you, we were back in town at this point. It was not that far. And he goes, oh, my God, I go to the airport and come back and you're a senator. And I'm like, not quite yet, but, oh, my God, it's all happening. So um, four of us were supposed to be confirmed by the High Court into the Senate. Three were confirmed. Uh, I was not uh, because there was a question over my appointment to the tribunal, um, which I had by then resigned. Thank goodness I'd kept my other job as well, uh, but that it was an office of profit under the Crown. So the High Court went to review my appointment. Now, absolutely no one, and I mean no one, thought I was going to be ruled out. I mean, everyone was like, this is ridiculous, the election had ended, yeah. you, weren't, you weren't elected. Of course, people have to get on with their lives. And because the, you know, the idea going forward is then that no one, you know, you're not elected, you can't take a paid appointment under the crown. So people are just, well, that's But that also includes people that are teachers and, you know, nurses in public hospitals or, you know, um, fireys or, you know, there's a huge number of roles that are considered office of profit under the crown. And so, and basically means you get paid by the government. And uh, anyway, so we went to the High Court and the ruling was that I was ineligible, that the election had in fact never ended and therefore I was ineligible. And i got to say that was a bigger blow than the double dissolution. Yeah. Double dissolution I was fully mentally prepared for. Yeah. The High Court decision was pretty tough. That was a pretty big blow. And it, to make matters worse, Sky News reported <laughs> that I had, you know, been been appointed and then had to retract no. and say no. So I'd actually had two people on the phone going, oh, my God, this is so exciting, and then had to ring me back and go, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Far out. And so what yeah, was it was period? it was a fun time, not. Yeah. What yeah. was the period between, like, you know, I imagine it, it's a similar situation to anyone that sort of, like, I use the word grief, and I think it's, like, the right word to use when mm. you've, it's like the same as a breakup or anything that you've had your expectations really set high for. You've, there's a yeah. grieving process associated with that. Absolutely there is. And, you know, you have to take some time to process that. And it was, you know, it wasn't a happy time, I can tell you that. You know, it was um, really confronting. It was devastating. You know, you're looking down the barrel thinking everything that I've worked for, everything that I wanted is gone. Did you take Um, any comfort in the fact that there was, did you feel like you would retain that number one spot on the Senate ticket going into 2019? Look, I didn't know. I I honestly didn't know um, whether or not that was possible. I remember having lunch with two very, very close political friends of mine 
Um, and both of them basically kind of said to me, you know, we kind of get it if you want to walk away. And I'm like, are you serious? No. That's the worst thing. And to say yeah. like that to someone like you, I just like, <laughs> I know you. I just mean like you are not one to, you, you persist. No. no. So I sort of said, no, 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 I won at last go. No reason I can't do it again, and I think both the boys, these were both men, mm-hmm. uh, both the boys were kind of like, Awesome, okay, we weren't sure that was what we were going to hear from you, but great, let's get to work. So, um, you know, it was it was a really well supported decision, but it was certainly one that I was left to make in the sense that there was no pressure on me one way or the other. Yeah, it took a lot of your own self assurance and own like self-talk to be able yeah. to be like yeah I'm going like this is gonna happen it but I didn't have anyone calling me and saying this is all over and I didn't have anyone calling me and saying right let's go and get you know that's hard hit up again it was we'll just because give her some want- time <laughs> and when she's ready she'll let us know so you know I, I I was incredibly well supported I mean I still remember when the prime minister called me that night I mean he was just absolutely shocked. Yeah. Absolutely shocked. And I remember saying to him, well, there's nothing like three children who still need to be fed and a girlfriend who's just walked around the corner with more bottles of wine and she can barely carry in her arm. I think we'll be okay. I so, love it. You know, good friends, good professional, you know, political support um, and, you know, three kids that were still pretty young back then <laughs> doesn't give you a lot of time to sit and wallow. Well, you didn't have very much time to wallow because in 2019 we became a senator and I just want to take you, now that we've got that out of the way, I think that people, (laughs) I just, I really wanted to spend some time on that because I think it's really important. What I love about your story is like, it's, it's realistic, like politics is politics and there can be, it can be tough. And you do need to be resilient. And I think that I remember when, you know, 2019 rolls around and I'm sitting wherever I was sitting, New South Wales Labor Party office, watching your maiden speech. And it really just, it's like a wave of warmth in your heart to know that it's doable. Even uh, even against the... (laughs) you know, High Court of Australia, like all (laughs) odds. Um, This maiden speech, it's famous and everyone needs to go on YouTube and watch it because you famously had to ad-lib half of your speech because, you know, new staffers, (laughs) someone may have Honestly, can I just tell you as well? Yes. Both my chief of staff and myself had influenza A. We were on Tamiflu. We both wanted to die. We were so sick. I had been in bed until 2 o'clock that day and had to haul myself out of bed because I had about 300 people coming to watch it. I'm thinking, I can't postpone this. You looked great. You would have never known about the Tamiflu. That's a miracle because I looked like a corpse at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The wonders of makeup. But. You know, I went into the office once I was dressed. We did a run-through of the speech and, like, you know, when you do these things, we pulled stuff out, we moved stuff around, we changed a couple of words. So my chief of staff, you know, she went and fixed it up. 
and printed it off, put it in a folder. And we, because we had so many people coming to town, my family had arrived, so my kids were in the office. It was just starting to get a bit hectic and, you know, Erin and I both wanted to die on the lounge. I just said to my staff, you know what, I'm just going to go sit in the chamber and just have a little bit of quiet time before the speech. So I sat there with my speech in front of me, started reading it, and I think I got about two or three pages in and went, you know what, I'm not reading this again. I know it. It's fine. I don't need to read it again. I'm done. So just sat there and waited to give my speech. And, of course, then I started giving my speech and get halfway through and the rest of it's not there. <laughs> and then so so basically you ad-lib the latter half of the speech and when I was watching it again, I'm just like, this is just my life, Holly. I just like sit in my room watching your maiden speech over and over again. Um, I actually don't think I've really watched it again. I'm it's not really sure good. I've got to tell you. <laughs> Loved it. Um, what struck me was, I mean, it was kind of fortuitous that the half that was left in the printer was about the NDIS and disability services, because you say it yourself, like you talk about this every single day. So, you know, it wasn't that hard for you to find the words and what you wanted to say. And I thought it was really powerful because it was just your pure passion talking about something that was is really important to you. And you carry that passion for the NDIS through to Parliament today. Like even when I emailed your office being like, please come on my podcast, you get this auto response as you do with a lot of parliamentarians, I think all actually, to be like mm. recognising the receipt of your email. I'm a very busy person. It's not in that language, but it's like I have a lot of meetings and my poor... I'm very busy and important. What do you want? <laughs> But Holly says, um, you know, if there's if if this pertains to the NDIS, please provide your NDIS number. And I think that just goes to show what an advocate you are and that you are, you know, sitting on, you are formulating the autism strategy. I just want to, uh, uh, on top of the inquiry, how has that passion translated practically in your time in Parliament? Well, we've had a number of inquiries that are much smaller than the autism inquiry, particularly around the Joint Standing Committee into the NDIS. And we are seeing policy changes that are coming out of those inquiries already. And, you know, I'd like to think that my advocacy and the work that I do in the parliament around this space is very much focused on the participants and their family. Um, I think we've had a little bit in the past, and I, you know, without naming names, I think there's a few people probably still pushing a bit of an agenda that's actually more from the big service providers' perspective. Um, Quite frankly, they're a business and I'm more concerned with what the participant experience is. So, for example, one of the things that we've had a look at and I understand the policy change is coming uh, is around supported independent living. So basically what that is is the old group homes. But we've got a situation at the moment where providers can basically be bricks and mortar owners so they can own the house and be your landlord as well as your service provider. Now, the core of the NDIS is choice and control. So if you live in a house that's owned by Organisation A and you want Organisation B to deliver your services, there have been and we have heard of and we know of limitations to that occurring. 
limitations to that occurring is a really nice way of saying like probably organization a block it from happening because they also provide that service okay but it also doesn't suit their service delivery what we found through that inquiry was some of those group homes like to do group activities so if you're a 30 year old man who doesn't want to go to the park but wants to go to the movies and you've got to support you know that that organization a wants to take all four, you know, residents in that house to the park. So, you know, this 30-year-old, you know, man with a disability has to go to the park because Organisation A doesn't make any specific accommodations for him at all. And so what we want to see, because all of these people have their own NDIS plans, so they have everything there for their own access, for their own daily living supports, their own community participation. And we want to see if you're Organisation A, you can be a landlord, but you can't be a service provider. And so we want to be able to split those two out and that's going to happen. And I think, you know, that's a really powerful change for a lot of people. And that's, you know, just one of the policy areas that we're looking at and changing um, via the NDIS. You know, the other thing for anyone who knows an NDIS plan at the moment, we refer to them as buckets of money. Yeah. And my son has a plan and we get money for, you know, we have a bucket for daily living. Um, we have a bucket for community participation. Um, we have a, look, don't even ask me the names of all the buckets because yeah. honestly, I'm a member of Parliament. Got a couple of degrees. I'd like to think I'm pretty across this issue. I can't work out what bucket of money some of this stuff's supposed to yes. come out of because they cross over all the time. Yeah. So if you... you're doing a program where you're learning to cross the road, and use money and then practicing it, buying it at a shop, where does that go? Is that community participation or daily, or daily living? living? Oh, my like, gosh. So what we're doing is we're getting rid of the buckets. Great. So you're just going to have a plan. So it, it, there's these sorts of really practical changes as well. So, yeah, the SIL one's a big policy shift with regards to service providers are going to have to make the bigger decisions and work out what they're doing. But then there's other things that will make it so much easier for participants and their families when they're not having to try and negotiate which bucket of money that service comes yep. out of because it's ridiculous. It's all one plan anyway. I love and it that. also means you've got greater flexibility. Well, it's so I'm so happy that there is someone, like it's, it's so refreshing to hear what change is being made in Parliament. My question for you is, in your remaining time in Parliament, is there one sort of like flagship change that you're like, if I could get that done, I will leave Parliament happy. I think they shift for you all the time. Um, I mean, obviously, from the NDIS and the autism perspective, I have um, goals that I'd like to achieve. Uh, if I can see a national autism strategy in place that makes our kids and their families' lives better, I, I would be immensely proud of that. Uh, I, um, you know, recent, well, NDIS... I was talking to a, a girlfriend of mine who is very involved in the autism space as well, and we were talking about the changes and the proposed model. And you'll be interested to know she actually comes from the more Labor side of politics, even though she's not in politics um, directly. But her and I were talking about the changes and what's having the sustainability of the NDIS. And you know, we both had kids that went through programs before the NDIS when. Back in the day, we all sold every investment property we had or share we had or cashed in super or, you know, we had to access funds from everywhere and anywhere because we didn't have the NDIS. We didn't really get much assistance, if at all, um, for our kids' programs. So 
the sustainability of the scheme is so important to us as parents but also as, you know, we feel like for those coming behind us that we are incredibly focused on its sustainability, not reducing it, not in any way diminishing the scheme, but we need to make sure it's there so that when Jack and Fred are in their 40s, 50s and 60s, it's still there for them because we can't have a situation where it's no longer financially sustainable. So just to talk about something else, you know, what I'd like to achieve, um, last year I chaired the inquiry into vaping of all things. Oh, my gosh, I read Uh, this article and it's like Holly Hughes kicks cigarettes and now she's a vapor. (laughs) And that's so true. In fact, I've got my phone here. I'll see if I can get the app up for you because you will love it. Um, so I, I was, you know, as I joked, I did a podcast previously, I was a hundred percent committed to my B&H smooth with a glass of wine. Like I had a full commitment to that. And when I got involved in this vaping inquiry or the vaping issue, because it became, it was about that choice to me, you know, I believe adults can make their own decisions and take personal responsibility for them. Nicotine is available in a multitude of forms. It's available in cigarettes and and combustible tobacco, which we know is harmful. We know is incredibly harmful. It's available in every store on the corner. Yeah. We have lozenges, gum, spray, patches, most of which are available at the supermarket, not even high on the shelves. The issue issue here is that is there a group in parliament um, and is there a group in parliament that doesn't, like, wants to ban vaping? Well, um, Minister Hunt had a particularly strong view okay. about it. Uh, he had 28 of us backbenchers write to him and go, yeah, no, nah, when he tried to do a personal right. importation ban. So it kind of went from there. It was all being led from within the government. Um, so That's it was so interesting as well to see that, like, I feel like some people, are, there is definitely this perspective that, like, if you're a member of the government, it's just like Scott Morrison's way or the highway and it's like you can't, you can't express your personal yes. feelings. See, as you as you mentioned, Scott's known me for nearly twenty years. I think he would find that hilarious, <laughs> um, particularly in my case. But certainly, Greg Hunt has come up against it um, yeah. when I discredit and, and and my you know discredit. when you signed the letter saying Holly Vape Lord Hughes. <laughs> well, look, it was it was you know personal choice for me, and then yeah. so I decided I should find out what this whole thing was about, and I literally accidentally quit smoking. So I haven't, I just had a joke, I haven't had a cigarette for 196 that days. incredible. Look, I've only got like 10 minutes left with you. Okay. I could talk to you all night, but just for this last 10 minutes, I want to take you to, I've, I've, you know, I was naturally flagging it as the heavier stuff, but I don't think it is. As you were saying earlier, um, sort of taking the politics out of issues. And that's really how I feel about the culture at Parliament House, the treatment of women, everything that we've been seeing rolling around in the media. Obviously, the volume of testimonies has been really overwhelming. I've felt it amongst women across the board, like staffers, friends, whatever. It's been feeling very suffocating. You yourself have spoken in the media about being groped as a staffer. I just, so I really feel like every woman is feeling it in in a really visceral fashion. Mm. As a senator, what what have how has this been impacting you? What do you think about it, and how are we going to change it? 
just a couple of small questions yeah, there. Yeah, a couple yeah. in the last five minutes, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, no dramas. Uh, look, I have been out last week and week before in the media and I have quite a bit to say around some of these issues. One of them, though, is I will say I think coalition women have been probably the most isolated women in Parliament House. And the reason I say that is we do not get defended in the same way that women on the left get defended when they are attacked. So if you are, and not only women, if you are attacking a coalition member or you are uh, a woman of the left, you will have a sisterhood around you that's there to protect you and support you and back you up. Um, We saw it the other week with Nicole Flint when she called out what happened to her in Boothby and everybody knew what was happening to her in Boothby. It was covered in the media during the election. So it was not under the carpet. This was front and centre as an issue during the election. And when Nicole called it out in Parliament, she was told she was a liar. Now, this is not new and I've had it, a number of my female coalition colleagues have had it, um, We're told we deserve it because we're right-wing, we're conservative women, we're right of centre, we obviously deserve it. You know, I'm told I'm a bootlicker of my boss. I'm, Mm. uh, look, I I don't even, I can't even go through some of them. Um, One of them telling me to go hang myself with the lovely C word at the front, followed by a suggestion when I noticed I hadn't done that, that they'd come to assist. Um, there, there was no outcry when that was said to me. There was no one raised an eyebrow to that. There were none of these women in the media jumping up and down how horrendous it is. When Bridget McKenzie was told by a media commentator that she should take her guns and use it on herself, again, zero outcry from this alleged sisterhood. And so I think if we want to be serious about this issue, we need to support all women and not decide those that are of the right of centre deserve it, are liars and just should be left on their own because you just it's not going to happen if we will support women as long as you think like us. That's just not going to cut it. So I think that is a fundamental problem and I think that comes down to the partisanship that we're seeing in this issue now and politicisation of it. Can I just ask before we move off that to, mm. you know, the bigger picture of like the culture and the change mm. for wider society... I agree with you. I I, th- I don't. I think it would be really hard for anyone to disagree that that like that that is factually what happens to coalition mm. women. I just want to ask a different question. What is the sisterhood? You like you might not feel the solidarity from women, you know, cross party or in different, yeah, across the aisle. What about it within the coalition? What's the sisterhood like in the coalition? It's incredibly strong and I think most people um, are either surprised to hear that or don't really understand it. Um, We are incredibly supportive of each other. Katie Allen was on Insiders yesterday and she talked about the class of 19, so that's our class of 2019. We've been very active at maintaining uh, a real collegiality amongst us. We get get together as often as we can. Uh, We catch up. We have our own groups that we talk um, so there is a real sense of not only the women in that group but also the men in that group that we do look after each other and check on each other and make sure everyone's hanging in there because it's a pretty lonely environment parliament house um, it was interesting to hear when karen andrews and both sarah henderson make the point that the boys will quite often get together oh, and we're excluded amazing. and 
you know, do you know what I think a lot of women were actually really um, relieved to hear that? Because I think some of them felt that perhaps it was them personally that was excluded rather than it kind of being a little bit more across the board. Uh, so and I don't, I don't know, know, maybe we all need to get better. Hey, if you're not invited, wine's in this office. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, dinner here. This takes me um, to the bigger question because it's, it's, I feel like it's a tough nut to crack because I think a lot of a lot of those things, like what Sarah Henderson was pointing to on Insiders, about sort of soft alienation or non-inclusion, it's kind of it's really informal and it's kind of difficult to address. Yeah, and I just you know I found it back in my young labor days, like some decision would be happening and. Then you, then I'm like, how did I not know about this? How do I exercise my power in this mm. area? And I've found out that it's because, you know, those conversations were happening over beers at the pub after the caucus. Mm. And so I wonder how is, how, how do we address these more amorphous power structures that I think, I think parallel from both, you know, a parliamentary setting where it's like more, you know, women are excluded or whatever they're not involved in these conversations too i think that i think that permeates this whole issue that we are experiencing about toxic masculinity and just you know and like a seemingly non-understanding of that this these issues affect all women yeah i think though one of the problems is is i don't want to see this become an issue that women have to fix. Yes. It's not a women's issue. And I think sometimes we can get a little bogged down that women need to do this, women need to do that. I, you know, to bring the mean girls analogy in, there's probably a couple of blokes who would most closely identify with Regina George in the way that they maintain their groups, they maintain their network. And there's probably a few people in that group who aren't as exclusionary, who aren't someone who would actively want to exclude people from a conversation. So I think it's up to some of those people, and some will be men and some will be women, to probably look at being a little bit more inclusive on their own part, Um, maybe suggesting some of these exclusive little lunches and dinners and things that happen evolve that you know you have a couple of new people each time or you know no one's gonna love everyone no one's gonna love everyone on their own side you know I mean that's the other thing people don't know we have friends on other sides you know quite often better friends because they actually don't want to kill you for a promotion so you know (laughs) sometimes you can have better friends across the aisle yes and you know we we just need to Acknowledge we're all human. You know, people have groups of friends. That's, you know, life. People have other people they like to spend time with because they share views, they share similarities. Uh, But when you are getting into those sorts of discussions and you feel like there need to be other views, you know, taken into account, those other people at the event should probably take some ownership or the lunch and say, maybe we should invite you know, X, Y or Z next time. They've got a pretty good interest in this area or they've, you know, said some stuff in the party room. Maybe we should have a chat to them or have, you know, there is no easy answer to this because it's not just politics, it's life. It's in from the schoolyard up. 
And, you know, I think that's where some of the cultural change between men and women's relationships really needs to change, though, from our, you know, from our kids. Okay. Oh, I was just like... (laughs) We need to have a separate like wine session after this because <laughs> I've got so many other thoughts. But I don't know. Have you just have you discussed our conflict of interest and the fact we've actually been friends for quite a few? Years? No, this is not a conflict of interest. This <laughs> is exactly what this podcast is all about. My last question, Holly, is sorry, Senator Hughes. Oh um, gosh, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> um, young women. If you had one piece of advice, wisdom, encouragement to young women listening to this podcast thinking, wow, I want to I wanna stop the banning of vaping, I want to advocate for the NDIS, what's your <laughs> advice for young women who want to get involved in politics? Look, I think one of the things that's become apparent to me over the years is quite often you regret what you don't do, not what you do. And when I what I mean with that is... Sometimes opportunities present themselves that women don't grab hold of and we need to be braver. Um, I saw this when I worked in search. You know, we'd we'd go out to approach men and approach women for jobs. Men would look at the job as their next step and what they could learn and what they, you know, they'd already done, but I could do that, no drama at all. Women always approach these roles, and I'm talking about very senior roles were much more focused on where they'd already proven themselves, what they'd already done and how they already had experience. And that was such an eye-opener to me that men looked at the next opportunity and where they could go. Women wanted to be able to prove they could already do it. And I think quite often we let opportunities slip us by because we haven't already done it. We don't know what we're going to be getting ourselves in for. And so take the lead, get involved, but also don't seat shop. Decide what you want, spend a bit of time and then work through your party. And that's, you know, it's politics. The party is going to pre-select you. If you turn up two minutes before, no one's going to know who you are. And I think you owe it to the people that are members of the party who make that decision. They sometimes get denigrated in this process, but, you know, a lot of them are very hardworking community members of a political party, whatever side you're on. And they deserve the respect as well. So get involved, get become part of it, um, but decide what you want and make a decision and work towards it. Don't faff around, but also take every opportunity. I know that sounds contradictory, but take opportunities when they come. I love it. Very wise words. Where can we find you, Holly, if we want to have a chat? <laughs> What's the best place? Um, look, my, as you know, my email's there, senator.hughes at aph.gov.au. Um, you know, I, I do tend to answer my Instagram messages most of the time, much to the chagrin of my staff. (laughs) You know, oh God, I, I finally learned what that expression means. Oh, thank you so fact, much, I think Holly. it was our mutual friend, Nick, that explained to me oh, what that gosh. meant. Oh, gosh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, everyone listening, yeah, slide into I'm Holly's so DMs. technically <laughs> But it's Senator underscore Holly, and it's Holly with an IE, which awesome. is hilarious because Sue Lyons in particular, the Deputy President of the Senate, always calls me Senator Holly rather than Senator Hughes in the chamber and it's hilarious and I just always go so glad you followed me on Insta (laughs) I love it thank you so much Holly I appreciate it so much I had so much fun so fun Leish so nice to see you 
In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wajak people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing, and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at Alicia.AikenRadburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye to Luke. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> See ya. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.